Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Question number five refers to verses 15 through 18, but I'm gonna drop back to, to verse 12 and read through the finish so we get a little, little traction as we move into this. Uh, the subject head is free sexual immorality. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us raise us by up by his power do you not know that your bodies are members of christ shall i then take the members of christ and make them members of a prostitute never or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her for as it is written the two will become one flesh but he who is joined to the lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. <clears throat> Question number five, why is sexual sin a sin against our own body? You know, in asking these questions, our temptation, my temptation, is to try to go deeper than what the scripture says. <laughs> and sometimes in trying to, as we say, flesh it out to make it practically understandable, it's okay to do that. But it's not like we have to, as what the term is, drill down to try to find some deeper meaning than what is said here this is what it is so I don't want you to feel pressure from me 
that's why I appreciate that very, those very straightforward kind of answers right out of Scripture here. But the Bible certainly does make it clear because they make it clear that sexual sin is something pretty special in a bad way uh, because it gets so much attention, doesn't it? I, I don't think there's any other sin that receives as much text as sexual sin. So there's something pretty important going on here. Uh, there is a sense when sexual sin destroys a person like no other sin because it's so intimate and it, it corrupts us at a very, very deep level. You know, most of us know people who have led very licentious lives. And you know that over time, they really suffer for it emotionally. And, and we live in a culture since, you know, for those of us who are baby boomers, you know, we were at the vanguard of that. We led the way for that in the, the actually it started ginning up back in the fairly early 60s. But certainly by the mid to late 60s, it had become a, a way of life. Uh, and not just for young people, but particularly for, uh, for people my age. When I graduated from college in 1969, I mean, it was just, that was the way it was. And it, and it has been devastating to our culture and, and to us individually, people that engaged in that. It's a very bad thing. Um, And the other thing that is obvious from Scripture in this, and it, if we really believe what the Bible says, and we are, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, any sin, but particularly these sexual sins, that we are literally dragging God into that and sin that we're engaged in, now, that doesn't defile God in some way any more than sunlight is defiled by shining down on a garbage dump. But it, it's just such a blatant sin against God to do that. Does that make any sense to you? It makes me cringe to think of that. And it's not certainly limited to sexual sin, but just the intimacy of that with God the Holy Spirit dwelling within us is pretty abhorrent. I think you can also tie in where uh, it says if you lust in your heart with the same thing. It doesn't have to be a physical contact. You look at a woman or a man in lustful ways and that's the same thing. Yes. It would be the same thing for coveting and many other things. But once again, the sexual sin gives very special, gets very special attention in that, in that way. You know, people fr frequently speak of how harsh the Old Testament is and how loving the New Testament is. 
And the truth is, Jesus is such a much tougher standard for righteousness than, than is in the Old Testament. You know, you've heard it said, you know, to uh, commit murder. He said, I say to you that even to be angry with a brother, you know, it's a much tougher standard. Thanks, Steve. Any other comments on, on that? Are you ready to move on? just as they apparently were for everyone else. <clears throat> Paul reminds them that the bodies of Christians are one with the resurrected Christ in the risen form Christ's body will be eternal and what they do now then is important. Yeah. Question six, we know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What are the implications for us as Christians? And how does this contrast with the world? Let's start out with part two of that question first. What are the world's view about our bodies? Your body is your choice. Do what makes you happy. What? Do what makes you happy. Yeah. If it feels good, yep. do it. And even the term casual sex, that's just, that's just not true. Yeah. The world believes that the body really has no lasting eternal value. We know that in our glorified <coughs> state, our bodies are going to take a different um, substance probably. Um, you know, just when Christ was raised, uh, we know he went through that glorification process that we will go through, um, but the world believes that the body will return to nature. There's not a lasting significance to it, um, let alone a present temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's far from them, so they just view it as another piece of nature, probably. Um, no different than an animal. Any other ideas on that? How the world sees that? I think the world sees <clears throat> the body like you're a slave to your body. Like there's been some curriculum <clears throat> I've had to go through, like the training as a teacher on topics like sexual things. And it's like, well, just you're supposed to promote that the children should explore their bodies. And that's not just leading a sexual sin that leads to anything. Because you're, if you're a slave to your feelings and your emotions, you're going to steal, covet, commit adultery, all the things. What about abortion? Ow. You know, how low can we go? in making those definitions. Yeah, I read a, I read a quote one time on abortion, and um, this is a paraphrase, it may not be exact, but it says like, it said something like, abortion is the evil opposite of the gospel, because the gospel says 
You know, Jesus says, I'm going to give my life for you. And abortion says, you're going to give your life for me. I was thinking the other day in reviewing this of how that idea of our sovereignty over our own bodies is enshrined in music. And, and particularly in music from the, at the same time of the sexual revolution moving forward. And already you're thinking of things. There was one that when Marianne and I were, maybe when we were in college, I don't know, it's my life, I can do what I want. And how about Frank Sinatra's song? I did it my way. Yeah. Uh, oh, Sammy Davis Jr. was that one. So, can't think of the song right now. It was in that movie. Uh, yeah. What? The Candy Man. No, that wasn't it. <laughs> it was in that movie, The Money Pit. <laughs> it kept singing over and over and over. I, well, anyway, you got the idea. <laughs> I mean, it's almost become whimsical in some of those things. Yeah. I, in those days, it seemed like, and, and I can still kind of true today, that the world has a standard like love above all. You know, as long as you don't hurt anybody else, you don't want to do that. Um, they don't think about abortion as hurting somebody else, obviously. But it's like... Uh, as long as you're in a committed relationship, that sort of thing. Uh, love justifies everything. What do you think about this? Your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit. Just how we care for our bodies. Maybe I shouldn't be drinking all this caffeine. <laughs> I'm going to read you one that may offend someone here. It may offend everybody here. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead. That was a cultic practice at that time. Nor tattoo yourselves, for I am the Lord. We Christians have a gnawing desire to conform to the culture. And, and it is just interesting to me, just in the last 10 or 15 years, just the popularity of that. Certainly in the, in the culture, the non-Christian culture, but how the Christians have caught on to that. And you can say, well, that's Old Testament. Uh, Christ fulfilled all that. Well, you know, that was a moral law. It wasn't a ceremonial law. And what God wanted in that 
was exactly what is repeated in Romans. Don't conform to this culture, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He didn't want his people to look like these pagan cultures all around them. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. So why would we defile that which is of the Holy Spirit? I mean, that's, this one gets pretty personal. Some of you in here may have done that, and certainly there's repentance for anything we do. And it, you know, in the world of sin, it's probably a, a more minor sin in a way. There are, all sin condemns us because it's a sin against the lawmaker. But obviously there are some sins that are much more serious and important than others. You know, why is it for some sins there was a grain offering and for others you had to slaughter a bull? You know, there was, there was a difference there. Some are more critical. So I don't know where this one falls in that continuum. But, you know, I've seen many Christians I know and, and, and good, strong Christian people that will have three crosses tattooed on their shoulder or, or a Bible verse on their back or something. And uh, I just think we should refrain from those kind of things. That's my opinion. My opinion. Steve? Also, uh, it says women should not cut their hair. I mean, how far do you take that one? I'm speaking to the advocate here on the other side. I mean, it says in the Bible, women, their hair is their beauty. You shouldn't cut your hair. And I bet every one of us in here cut our hair. How come we don't have, men have, don't have long hair? <clears throat> the issue in that was that women shouldn't cut their hair to look like a man. I don't know that there was a prohibition against cutting it at all, but there was supposed to always be this distinction between men and women. And we'll get into that later with head coverings and all other kinds of things and try to figure out what that means in our culture today. Because some of that was cultural at that time. Uh, we'll try to figure that out. Okay? I don't have all the answers to that, by the way. If you're, if you're looking at me for that, some of these things are... Um, some are cultural, some aren't. So. Any other comments about this before we move into the next chapter? Well, there's, um, so our kids learned, I believe, the song here at church with their um, leaders. And uh, the Getty song, you're familiar with Keith and Kristen Getty. Mm-hmm. Um, they're songwriters and really great um, theologically sound um, songwriters but um, the second verse of this song called I Am Not My Own uh, is specific to this whole physical body connecting to the spiritual realm but it says my body is a temple of the living God I'll worship in this house that his blood has bought as I bear his image oh may I not profane the holiness I hold in this earthly frame and that holiness aspect, you know, our bodies are set apart. There is a difference between, or there should be, between the way a believer treats their body and the world. Um, but our oldest daughter, this is her favorite song right now. It's four verses of theologically sound principles about this. So I'm hoping she continues to sing that as she gets into her teen years and, you know, early adulthood, just so... You know, she's constantly reminded and singing to herself, you know, how valuable that physical aspect of our lives are. Um, you know, she wouldn't forget that. So it's a really good song if you have kids growing up into adulthood. It's just called I Am Not My Own. But that's a great song to learn. 
And, and I would encourage us, you know, like in singing that song, that, that builds uh, the, the hymns we sing, everything, the worship songs we sing. I heard Ernie Godshall say years ago here, we were singing some song, I don't remember what it was, but it was something, uh, maybe it was like, you're all I want, you're all I ever needed. And we all know that that's not true. We want all kind of stuff, don't we? I mean, it, that song to me revealed sinfulness to me. There's a lot of songs we sing that reveal my sinfulness. And I remember when Ernie took the pulpit after that last song, and it may have been that one, but it was something like that. He said, we sing to our aspirations. And I thought that was a very, very profound thing he, he said there. And it, it gave me a lot of freedom to sing that song later. Some of them I just can't sing. I, I don't fulfill it. Uh, but this thing with the, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, rather than having a feeling of this in some way uh, restricting us, we should glory in that, be so blessed by that, that God dwells w within us. Well, I mean, what a wonderful thing, rather than thinking it's, oh, no, you know, now I can't do this and I can't be whatever. It's a, it's a great thing that this that God would esteem us highly enough as his redeemed people uh, to do that for us. Okay. Mom, I think uh, something that concerns me about that is just because I know some people who, um, just as believers who are in ministry, and sometimes as believers, when we get into ministry, and like I said, I've talked to two people who have had this philosophy that, they want to meet people in their ministry. And it, these two people were involved with teenagers, you know, teenage, early college. But they feel like, you know, by them getting tattoos or swearing or whatever, that they can meet those people where they are. And I'm just like, oh, no. That's, you know, like you just said, we are called to, we are called to look different, to be different. But that's my concern as, you know, as time goes on and with the culture. Um, I just think as believers, we really have to be careful with that. Yeah, that's <coughs> a really important thing. When, when the church starts mimicking, mimicking the culture, why in the world would the culture want to come there? Why, why would someone want some unsaved person come here and get what they're getting out there that they're trying to get away from. You know, there, there needs to be something different, something holy, something set apart. And holy just doesn't mean set apart. That is a definition of that. But it is there's a standard of righteousness that people would see in us. And ultimately, for the elect, they would recognize that. So, yeah. But we, we do have a very strong desire to conform to the culture, to be liked, to not stand out. Just one more little thing uh, to bounce off that. Uh, I, I just heard that there was a post, well, I actually saw the post on Instagram from Campus Crusade, and they were saying that they, that 
the kids should be referred to with the pronoun that they prefer mm -hmm. to make them, it's again, to make them feel comfortable. And that's just, you know, going with the culture again. It's, it's not being different and saying, they're not, you know, there's male, there's female. You're just compromising. Yeah, we had a, uh, a young lady in our business that uh, wanted to be one of those they, them people. And actually in one of our staff meetings, Marianne, you can probably remember better what we, I mean, we decided that we would not do that. That we are not going to participate in that insanity. But you put yourself at risk mm -hmm. yeah. uh, when you do that. Do you remember any more about that than that? Just the fact that we tried to include her, and as she got more um, feeling that she was loved and accepted, all that sort of went away. It was just, just a kid, wouldn't you know, right? Mm -hmm. We just wanted to be loved. First Corinthians chapter seven. Uh, principles for marriage. I'll read, oh, maybe the first nine verses. We'll see how far we get. <clears throat> now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Why do you think Paul writes that it's good for, well, let's, let me, let's, I want to do this differently. It is good for a man not, in it, some translations it said, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. What does that mean? Well, mine is sexual relations. Yeah. I guess that's what it means. It was a Jewish euphemism. Why do you think Paul writes that? Escalate to. Yeah. 
So he talks later on about burning with passion. That was pretty graphic about all this stuff, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. Other ideas about that? Being married doesn't make you any more of a Christian or any less of a Christian. I mean, Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate example. He never, you know, obviously he never touched a woman. So um, just if, if that's not what God has called you to, that's not what God has called you to. And it doesn't, like, I think some in our culture would look down on someone who doesn't marry, you know, as if, like, they're lacking something. But... God doesn't look down on you. you know, God calls everyone to something different. And if you're single and you're not married, you can devote more time to serving the Lord than someone who's married and has you know, children to take care of. This Corinthian culture was just a mess of all kinds of crazy ideas. And what gets most attention here is this sexual immorality. But there was another thing going on there. I think it's called, I mean, is it uh, docetism? Is that correct? Anybody know what that means? Well, this idea that the, you know, that the, the flesh is evil and the spirit is good. And there were Christians in Corinth that thought that it was okay and a good thing, an honorable thing to be married, but to have no sexual relations or relationship with your wife or husband, that you would attain to some higher level of spirituality in that. So that was another error that Paul was confronting here. Why he's even saying, hey, you know, the husband, your body belongs to your wife. wife your body belongs to your husband. To try to fight back against this myriad of crazy ideas in Corinth. Uh, it wasn't just one thing. There were many really, really mistaken ideas. It, he's certainly saying that it could be a good thing to be celibate, though, it, to be unmarried. And, you know, we'll get into that later on, but obviously... To be unmarried, a person would not have the responsibilities of the marriage and family and all the things and could, do, could devote himself more, or herself more fully to the church in doing that. Uh, but that's, we just know from practical experience that that would be the exception to the rule, not the rule. Going all the way back to Genesis where God said, it is not good for this guy to be alone. So he, he made a, a helpmate for him. And in every way, comparable. You could look at it too. Just, I mean, this could resonate with the world that it's good for a man not to touch a woman. We have a whole category of sexually transmitted diseases. So that's, you know, a, a good reason for a, a man not to touch a woman. Um, and then, obviously, the emotional baggage, like what Shane was talking about, whenever you have relations with someone and it joins you to that person, 
And if you have a, a problem with that, and you continue in that lifestyle, and then you decide to get married, it is very difficult to really put yourself, I mean, only with Christ's help can you truly become one with that one person after that kind of lifestyle. Uh, but then you look at the societal ramifications of the destruction of families because of that promiscuity um, within or outside of marriage, and the whole family structure being destroyed will destroy the society. So there's really good practical reasons for a man not to touch a woman, you know, like they were doing in Corinth at the time. Um, very practical advice here. Right. Or command. Back in those days, too, having a child out of wedlock was taboo. They would look down upon it. And society today is, hey, that's okay. You know, you can be a simple parent. You don't have to have a father involved. Um, it's okay. Which, to me, is, you know, you're taking away from that child learning, you know, not having a, a, a male in their, in their life to teach them, especially if you're a male, male child. I mean, look at our society, what it's turned into. I grew up in the 1600 block of North Fulton Avenue. I went to Cedar Hall grade school. And growing up directly out my front door across Fulton Avenue was this great big gothic looking house. And it was the Christian home for unwed mothers. It was where families would send their daughters to, to give birth who would become pregnant and then they would put those children up for adoption. And it was just interesting how the need for that disappeared as time went on and abortion increased. And now there's a factory or something there. That was the benevolence of the church at that time. Okay, converse to this question number one about not good for a man to have sexual relations. And certainly he's referring primarily there to out of wedlock, exclusively. To out of wedlock sex. Conversely, question two, why is better marriage a better option for most? On the physical side, it's corralling that innate desire physically um, if you're going to be you know lustful you're going to you're going to point that um, energy towards your spouse rather than whoever you come into contact with it's going to be um, contained within that holy union that the Lord has made provision for mankind um, and so that's why marriage is better you don't have to worry about the sexual um, diseases and, and all of that and you can grow your family and that kind of thing so um, and it's of course Christ and the church's um, uh, transcendent example you know that's what it should look like this is right. what a sacrificial relationship looks like so there's but it's you know the physical side for sure it is a as we say a creation ordinance it's something God created in creation to be this way. And in doing it that way, you and your wife and the Holy Spirit are come together as one. 
in a right relationship as defined by God, not by what we want it to be. And certainly for the raising of procreation, for the raising of children. And look what's again happened in our culture as a result of ignoring the mandate for marriage in raising families. You know, the, the single parent families or children that are basically abandoned and, and what's happened as a, re, as a result of that. The, in Corinth, uh, just in one of the readings I did, there were actually four kinds of marriage that they had. Just another example of how debased that culture was. One was a slave owner to a slave that they, they could be married in it, and it would last as long as the slave owner wanted it to. So if he got, and that was obviously a, uh, a male-dominated thing in that, in that culture. Uh, so if the slave owner got tired of this slave wife he had, he'd just do away with her, sell her maybe to somebody else, or, or, or if he saw somebody else he wanted, uh, whether she was another slave or just another woman. I mean, the, these polygamous-type marriages were commonplace there. A second kind of marriage is what we would call today is common-law marriage. In the Roman culture, if two people lived together for a year, that marriage could kind of become legally sanctioned at that point. I didn't really stand for much. They could still kind of leave at their whimsy, so there really wasn't anything really binding there. Um, and boy, have we seen that. You know, when, when uh, uh, most of us here were younger, it was, it was unheard of for people to live together. It just didn't happen. You know, we had terms for it. Uh, they weren't very nice. Uh, now, it may be more the rule for people to live together before they get married. And, and it's not right. And I know in another church where I served as an elder, when we would, when we would counsel uh, young people to be married, it was, it was not uncommon for two immature Christian believers to be living together. And we would demand that if they were going to be married, they would have to separate and become chaste from that point forward until the marriage or we would not marry them. And I think that was probably a, a good practice. You know, it, it demand. you know, they couldn't regain their virginity, but they could regain their chastity and their commitment to the Lord, willing to give this up to make that marriage right in the eyes of the Lord. A lot of grace, a lot of forgiveness of sin. And that's what we saw. The, another kind of marriage, a third kind, was marriage for, where a father would sell his daughter in marriage. I mean, that just makes us to think of that, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and the fourth type, it was a more elevated type. And each of these marriages had big Latin names with them. And the, the I'm only going to mention one in the fourth marriage for, for a reason. It was called uh, conferiatio. Now, it was more common in nobility or the patrician society of, of uh, Rome but our Christian marriage is based on, 
on that kind of marriage. It was uh, kind of identified with both families kind of coming together to ar arrange and do the work of these, this couple getting married. Uh, the bride was accompanied by a matron and the, and the groom by a man, you know, that we call the, what do we call him? Best the best man, yeah. Uh, the bride would wear a veil. There would be, a, you know, an, an elaborate ceremony. Uh, they would give a ring that would be placed on the third finger. There'd be flowers and a bouquet and a wedding cake. All that happened in that Roman culture in the higher class people there. Uh, and that was adopted. Those customs were adopted, first of all, by the Roman Catholic Church. But the Christian Church said, hey, this is a good thing, too. So that's kind of why we, most of us got married the way we did, going all the way back to this Roman culture. However, even under that fourth category, divorce was common. I mean, people just get tired of each other or, you know, she burned a toast or, you know, he came home grumpy. The wife said, the heck with you. I'm tired of putting up with this and, and leave. And it was not an uncommon thing for people to be married multiple times, 15, 20 times. And can you imagine the chaos that caused? <laughs> Just almost unimaginable. Um, and there was a very active feminist movement in this culture. Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> John MacArthur has a a sermon about it actually it's, it's some of it's almost comical i mean women participating in feats of strength and sometimes against their own husbands and, and they had these festivals where women would run around with spears uh unclothed from the waist up chasing pigs in this arena spearing pigs i mean it was a festival of this corinthian culture I mean, just crazy stuff. So, you know, the burning your bra thing <laughs> was child's play compared to what the Corinthians did. <laughs> a bizarre uh, society. And a lot of marriages were childless, too. They did not want to be burdened with children. They didn't want that responsibility. It was all a very confusing mess and uh, even for the mature Christians in these congregations I mean the culture was so debauched that it was hard to sort it all out figure out what's right and what's wrong here it would be kind of hard not to buy a ticket for the poor spring <laughs> event I gotta say that would be pretty entertaining but, uh, <laughs> yeah. we think mud wrestling is, <laughs> is a bad deal and it is okay <laughs> Child's play to what these people are doing. So, well, it's... Um, <laughs> hey, Bob, could I just add one thing? Please. please. So, well, <laughs> one thing I took from question two uh, was a little bit of a different slant, and it's because my wife brings tender, thoughtful, hospitable characteristics that I don't have. And so it actually makes me more into the picture of who God is because of her uh, and, and so I think one of the benefits of it is certainly we see as you said the union between Christ and the church 
But I think in a marriage relationship, you see a better picture overall of who God is. Because if left to my own, I wouldn't have people over. No offense, anyone. Um, you know, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't do that. 20 years ago, I wouldn't have done any of that. Now I'm like, oh, yeah, let's have people over. I love this. And those good things that have, that have developed in me are because of her. That was really good, Doug. That was but it's my, it's my too. Oh, absolutely. It goes along, you know, the other side of too. And I, it, that's true. That's very true of that question. So since Adam was created first, God said it is not good that he not be alone. But likewise, that's true for the woman, isn't it? There's that uh, complement. You know, we are a complementarian church here, that man and woman complement one another. We're not egalitarian, that we're not, we certainly are equal in value, uh, equal in just about every way. In salvation, we're equal. There's, but there is a role distinction between men and women in the culture, and that's one of those creation ordinances. Okay, and and it's when the husband is the spiritual head of the household, that's written in the indicative, not the imperative. The man is the spiritual head of the household. It's it's not what God's saying. You you should be this. It's what He is. Is he a good one or a bad one? That's the issue. Uh, and even in the authority structure, you know, there has to be some sense of authority there. But there's a co-regency in it. It's not like, you know, the husband's ruling with an iron fist. And, and boy, that is a big issue for marriage counseling in the Christian church, where husbands have a mistaken idea of that. Or the wife is... Genesis 3 says, kind of rebels against her husband and seeks to have authority over him, and it, it can be a mess, but, but typically not. Typically, the husband and wife complement one another, and there's always going to be frictions in that, where they complement one another and, and do better. She brings a softer side to you, and you are a protector, and, and you know, when well, well, we'll get into some of this later. Uh, it's probably enough uh, on that. But that's really a good observation. But yeah. Any, anybody else before we close? Okay. So we'll start with question three next week in uh, chapter seven.